Whenever we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, especially for the preacher, it's kind of difficult because you realize you've only touched on a few tiny things. For example, today we spoke mainly about justification. How can a man be right with God? And how can God declare a man who is a sinner right with him? And we learned that through only through the atoning work of Christ. The same God who declared us condemned in his righteousness, loved us to such a degree and in such a way that he himself became a man, took our place and suffered our punishment. Now, what you need to understand, it's very, very important, and I can only touch on it for here just a moment. When he died, he paid it all. He paid it all. So that the moment you believe in Jesus Christ, you are declared righteous before God. That doesn't just mean that you were pardoned of your sin, but it means this also. Jesus not only died for you, he lived for you. Those 30 years or so of his life, he lived in perfect subjection to the law of God. Do you understand that? He always heard from his father. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. On the cross, your sin was imputed to him. But the moment you believed in Jesus, not only were you forgiven, but the perfect life that Jesus lived was imputed to you. You were clothed in Christ. God now sees you as righteous and he treats you that way. Even when you sin, and we all sin. Even when he disciplines us, he does it with an unchanging disposition of love. So you are completely and perfectly free from condemnation, wrath, even guilt. Because of what Christ did for you on that tree. Now, here's something that's very important. What I just taught will have two different effects here right now. If you are and listen to my language very carefully, if you are an unconverted church person. If you are a person who kind of you identify yourself with Christ, maybe even belong to one of these groups, but you're not truly a Christian, you're not. You hear that salvation is free and that Christ paid it all and that there's no longer we're no longer in this realm of sin and death and judgment and we're free and that even when we sin, God loves us. Now, you'll hear something like that and say, wow, that sounds like a pretty good deal. Let's just sin. Let's not worry about it. I mean, this is great. We can just do everything that. Our wicked flesh has always wanted to do and there's no consequences for it and we still go to heaven. That's wonderful. Maybe you wouldn't say it that way, but you act that way. But now if you're here this afternoon and you're truly a Christian, you truly have been regenerated by the spirit of the living God and you're a new creature. Yeah, you struggle with sin and struggle with immaturity. We all do. But when you hear that salvation that Christ has paid it all, that we're outside now of the realm of sin and death and condemnation, that God loves us with an immutable love. 
when you hear this, the impact it will have on you is then I want to be more holy. I want to be more pleasing to him. I want to serve him in a greater way. You see, sometimes because I don't know who puts all these sermons of mine on the YouTube, but everyone who puts them on it, you would think, I mean, I watch them sometimes and I think, man, I'm the meanest man in the world. How come no one ever puts a sermon on there? I preach about love. But you know, if if I'm preaching to a group of Christians, not people who profess Christ and yet live continuously in sin and rebellion and careless about the things of God. But when I'm preaching to Christians, struggling, believing Christians who are clinging to Christ. You know what my greatest desire is? It's to teach them about the love of God. I'm going to tell you. The hardest thing you'll ever have to accomplish as a Christian. Are you ready? It's the most difficult task you're ever going to have to try to do. The most difficult thing you're ever going to have to do as a Christian is to believe that God loves you as much as he says he does. Because outside of God in Christ, there's just no example of that. My wife does not have an example of that in me, even though I wish she did. There's just no love like his love. You know, I'm going to talk about regeneration. That's what I'm supposed to talk about. But first of all, I need to settle this matter. You know, when you say God is holy, what pops into your mind? What pops in most people's mind is that God's without sin. And that is true. God is without sin. But that's not really the meaning of holiness. Did you know that? Holiness means that God is distinct. That's what it means. He is separated. He is in a class all by himself. Let me put it this way. God's not like us, just bigger or better. He's not like us at all. Let me put it in this way. As R.C. Sproul, I'll kind of borrow some of his language and turn it around a bit. But which of the following creatures is more like God. An archangel flying in his presence or a worm crawling in the pond. Which one's more like God? Which one's closer to God? In one way, the answer is none of them. You see, that archangel, as glorious as he may be, He's not closer to God. God is in a completely other category. The brother that was just up here that was like six foot, seven foot, some eight foot tall. You know, it would be really preposterous if he came up here right now and started boasting and looking at me going, I'm closer to the sun than you are. <laughs> because as far away as the sun is, it really doesn't make a difference, does it? Well, it, it's, that's, that is even a poor illustration. You see, when we say God is holy, um, let me put it this way, He's holy in His being. That means no one has a being like God. God is Trinity. No one is like Him. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's completely separate from all other 
beings. Did you know that God is holy in his immutability? He's the only one who doesn't change. He's in a separate category. He does not change. God is holy in his omniscience. He's the only one who knows everything effortlessly. Now think about that. You thought you knew about omniscience? God knows everything? No, what you need to understand, God knows everything effortlessly and instantaneously. He doesn't have to draw it back from memory. Okay? God is holy in his existence. He is the only being that exists without effort. Did you know that God is holy in his love? And you say, oh yes, his love is pure. Well, that's what it means in part, but you're not getting the idea. He's holy in his love in the sense that there's no one who loves like God. When someone says that they love and God says he loves, we're talking about apples and oranges. Now, why am I telling you all this? Do you see how important knowing the attributes of God can be? You say, well, I just th that kind of love is just yes, it takes the power of the Holy Spirit to believe it, to even see it because it's so great. And I want you to be saturated. I want you to literally be filled with the love of God. Because I know if you are a believer, that will drive you to wanting to be righteous and to be devoted and dedicated. And if you're an unbeliever who's religious, I know when you hear about the love of God, it'll make you nonchalant about sin. Let's party that grace may abound because we're still saved. You see the difference? Christianity is not about you joined a religion. It's you became a new person. A new life. And when that happens to you, a pastor really doesn't have to worry much about you. Because your heart has new affections that belong to God, and those affections drive you to want to be righteous, to be pleasing. Now, let's talk a little bit. We're going to talk about a lot of different things because I want to make sure that we understand what's going on here with regard to the gospel. I want you to go to the book of Romans for a moment. And Romans chapter 10. And I want to blow away some myths, some Christian cliches, and explain really what's going on in the text. Go to Romans chapter 10. It says in verse 9 that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Now, this text is biblical and it's true. It's very true. It's beautiful. But it's been twisted terribly. After you hear something like this, what are you usually then told? So if you would like to be saved, then pray this prayer with me. That's what usually follows this text. And if you pray this prayer and you're sincere, then the preacher will pronounce over you, you're saved. And if you doubt whether or not you're saved, he'll say, well, of course you're saved. That's what it promises. If you confess this, if you believe it, and you believe it, and you confessed it, so you're saved. They also use Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, opens the door, I'll come into him. And you do that by praying a prayer and asking Jesus to come in. No, that's not what that text means at all. It's not. I'm sorry. It doesn't mean that. It's not interpreted that way in church history. 
So what does it mean? I want you to see, starting in Romans 10, then we'll go on to Revelation, then we'll talk about regeneration a bit. First of all, in Romans 10, what is Paul talking about? The context Paul picks up again is faith. It's not of works. It's not of works at all. It's faith. It's rolling your hope upon the shoulders of Christ. It's clinging to Christ. It's believing in Christ alone. It's trusting in no one. It's basically making this statement. Lord, I'm going to trust in Jesus Christ. And if he's not enough to save me, then I'm going to go to hell because I'm not going to trust in anything else. I'm putting all my eggs in one basket. That's what it means. I trust in Christ alone. And if he's not enough, I'm damned. I will not trust in my good works. I will not trust in my religion, my baptism, my creeds. I will trust in the person of Christ and what he has done for me. That's the point that Paul is trying to get through their heads and their hearts. Now, he gives some splendid arguments here. He starts off and he says, uh, let's just uh, work our way down. Verse six. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. He's saying, look, in order to be converted, we're not saying that you have to do some extravagant and extraordinary deed. We hear of these, these Greek myths and such where the gods will challenge a mortal man to do something. He sets about a lifelong journey in order to accomplish this thing, in order to find salvation. That's not what God is saying here. He's saying, look, don't think you have to climb up into heaven or descend down into hell. The extraordinary feats of men are not enough to save them. How can we be saved? How can it happen? And he goes on, he says this. Verse eight, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we are preaching. He's talking about two things that are the opposite sides of the same coin. One is believing and the other is confessing. Now, I know we've taken that and turned it into a sinner's prayer and all kinds of things like that, but that's not what it's teaching. What it's teaching is this. You're saved by faith. And the evidence of that faith is confession. You are saved by believing in Christ and the evidence that you are truly believing unto salvation is confession, confession of Christ. What is confession? It is to speak forth Christ, to testify of Christ not to deny Christ. So let's go on, though, and let's look at the text again in its context. He says in verse nine that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, here's a, a bit of a problem here. Has Paul added confession to faith? I thought in Galatians and in Romans four and other places, it was just belief. Believe, and that's all, believe. Or as the great confessions, the Westminster, the 1689 London Confession, repentance and faith. That we are saved by repentance and faith, as we see clearly in the book of Acts, the teaching of John the Baptist, the teaching of Jesus. We are saved by repentance and faith. Now, has Paul added another thing? That we're saved by repentance, faith, 
and confession? No, that's not what he's teaching. What is he teaching? In a sense, he's teaching the same thing that James taught. If you look at Romans 4, what do you see? Faith alone, not of works. Faith alone, not of works. You get over to James and what do you see? Faith without works is dead. Can that kind of faith save you? So is there a contradiction in the Bible? No. What it is, it's the same coin and it's two different sides and one is the result of the other. What do I mean? Those who truly believe in Christ will confess Him even when it costs them to confess Him. Those who have faith, James says, they will have works. The works do not save them. The works are evidence they truly believe. Now there's a third thing we need to throw in the middle and it goes something like this. Those who believe in Christ unto salvation are those who have been born again are regenerated by the Holy Spirit and made new creatures. And since they are new creatures, they are now going to live a different way. It's the result of your salvation. You are saved by faith and because you are saved now and salvation involves more than fire insurance, it also involves a new nature, a new heart, a new desire, a new passion. You're going to live a different way. And so the evidence that we are truly Christian is that we are confessing Christ even when it costs us and we're bearing fruit. Something has really, truly happened to us. Something that can be proved. Now, my question to you is, is this a reality in your life? Is it a reality in your life? You do know, don't you? I mean, theologians talk about you all the time. You Americans. Some New Testament scholars will say something like this. If you look at a country like Indonesia or a place in the 1040 window where there's supposedly not many Christians, maybe let's say 2% of the population is Christian, they say it's very possible that the same thing could be said about the United States of America. That even though 65% of the people confess to know Christ, less than 5% or so are even Christian. But see, so many believe they're Christian today. Why? Because their hearts and their souls were dealt with superficially. Pray this prayer. Ask Jesus to come in. Did you do it? Yeah, I did it. You're saved. Okay, great. So when someone like me shows up to your door to witness to you, even though you're living like the devil, even though you're hiding sins and doing all sorts of things, and you really don't care about the thing of Jesus or Christianity, when I show up, you say, oh, I don't need to hear that. I've already taken care of that. I done, that. I done did that. Be very careful. Are these things I'm talking about a reality in your life? You know, one of the hardest things for me as a preacher, and I'm not being dramatic. But when I look out over a crowd like you, I know that some of you will go to hell. Even some of you who profess faith in Christ will go to hell. You see, when you take this Christianity stuff seriously, it can really weigh on you. Let, let me show you what this text is saying. There's a letter by Pliny the Younger, Roman 
literature, it's a Roman document by a Roman official. And this is what it says. He says, we found these professing Christians, but then, by threat of torture and everything, they offered incense to the gods, and they denounced Christ, and so I turned them out without further condemnation or judgment, knowing that they were not Christians. That's what Paul's talking about here in the book of Romans. What is he really saying, you know? If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved. Is that really saying that if you pray and ask Jesus to come in, he will? Or if you say the sinner's prayer, you're saved? No, what is he really saying? Let me tell you what he's saying. Let's say that all of us are in an underground church in Rome and we're meeting out in the woods and all kinds of things like that. And, and, but then one day when we're all headed back into town, we're met by a group of Roman soldiers and they're carrying an altar has a little bowl of incense on it. They're all standing there with spears. They're well armed, most well trained army in the world. And they command all of us to stay put. We stay put. They command all of us to offer incense to the emperor, to the gods. And we're scared because we know it's death or exile. And so after a lecture from them and great warnings about all they'll do to us, a few of us jump up, a few of the people in our group jump up, run to the altar, take the incense, throw it in the fire, Caesar is Lord, and they're off. We're sitting there going, what? And then, one of the old believers stands up, they push him up to the altar, and they say, Caesar is Lord. Say Caesar is Lord. He says, Kyrios Jesus, Jesus is Lord. And they kill him. And then another one of us goes up, poked in the back with the bunt of the spear. Confess Caesar! The believer begins to cry, tremble, almost about to pass out, so afraid, but cannot deny Christ and says, Jesus is Lord. They kill him. That's what that text is talking about. It's saying the evidence that you're truly a believer is that you will confess Jesus Christ. But not just with your mouth. Because remember what Jesus said, and we're going to study that in a little while. Many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, and I'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. It's not the one who confesses him as Lord that will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. Sure, you can confess Jesus Lord here today. But confess Jesus as Lord with your life. That's the evidence that you're truly converted. Now, let me ask you a question. Is Jesus Lord of your life? Now you can say, well, Brother Paul, do you perfectly obey Jesus? Absolutely not. And that is the pain of my heart and my life. Well, then what does it mean to confess Jesus as Lord? It's to truly recognize He's Lord with a conviction and a recognition so strong that it impacts your life. That I 
desire to submit to Jesus as Lord. I am growing in my submission to Jesus as Lord. When I do not submit to Jesus as Lord, it kills me. It breaks me and causes me to confess my sin and to go back again. Is this the type of relationship you have with Christ? Do you confess him as Lord? Is he Lord? Let me go on. I want you to run over to the book of Revelation for a second. Chapter three, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. That verse is used by evangelists all the time. I pointed out to an evangelist one time that that's not what that text means in its context. And he said, I know that's not what it means, but it works. It works to do what? What is he doing? What is really going on? First of all, he's not knocking on the door of the sinner's heart. That's a very famous painting, but it's not the text. He's knocking on the door of the church of Laodicea. So we need to be very careful, don't we? He's knocking on the door of the church in Laodicea. The church had estranged itself from him. The church had become independent of him. The church was wealthy and no longer seemed like it really needed him. So he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Open up the door to me, church. That's what it that's the context. Now, can it be used in evangelism? To a limited degree, it can be used as an illustration. But there's some important truths that no one ever talks about that if they would, it would make the verse a lot more useful. Look what it says. First of all. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Oh, it is true. Christ holds out his hands all day long to an obstinate people. Christ is calling. We see that not only in the Gospels, we even see it in the book of Proverbs, don't we? Where wisdom is standing at the gates of the city. Wisdom is in the crossroads of the uh, of the city in every byway where there are travelers going by. What is wisdom doing? Calling out, come to me, bend to my reproof, listen to me, learn from me and you will live. That's Christ. He is. He is standing at the door and he's knocking. He's calling out. He is. That's the graciousness of our God. Then he goes on. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door. Now. Look what we've done. When he says, hear my voice. Some of you will know exactly what I'm talking about when I tell you this. Do you remember maybe many, many years you sat in church and you'd hear sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon? I'm talking to you who are truly believers. You'd hear sermon after sermon after sermon. You really wouldn't pay attention. And then one day. This preacher or somebody is preaching. And you hear his voice, but then it's almost like you no longer hear his voice. There's another voice. Drowning out even the preacher's voice. You know who it is. You know it's Christ. A supernatural calling within a calling. Some of you know that, don't you? You remember it. It wasn't just a preacher said, who wants to come down front? It was Christ dealing with you. And you know it. You actually heard His voice. 
in your heart and in your mind, calling to you. You knew it was Him, beckoning you to come. That's much different than just some man talking to you like I'm doing right now. You see, I realize that preaching is very pathetic unless Christ speaks to you. Even through the voice of a man. Where you know it's Him. And then it says, you hear the voice and you open the door. Now, my dear friend, look how we've taken this. To open the door is when you hear Christ calling you. Yes, I know He's Savior. I know and I want Him. I desire Him. It means to open up your life to Him. Christ, take me. Come into my life. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. I don't want to wrangle over anything, your part, my part. Just take me. Save me. Remember when that happened? I hope you do. And look what we've done to that. We get a bunch of people in an auditorium. Evangelist tells jokes for a while so that you know he's a cool guy. And then he talks a few moments about how you need Jesus and he can make you a better life. Then they start playing the music really slow. They may even dim the lights. Then he'll start saying something like, if you would like Jesus, I want you to raise your hand. If you'd like to go to heaven, I want you to raise your hand. And then when you raise your hand, you're a goner. I see that hand. Now you can't escape me. I see you. I see you. There you are. I see that hand. Now in a minute, I'm going to ask everyone to come forward. When they come forward, you come forward because you know I've already seen your hand. And then, you know what, they'll even plant people in the auditorium who are Christians, who are counselors, but they'll tell them, look, come down during the invitation and make it easier for the other people to come down. That's manipulation, my friend. That's disgusting. So different from the call of Christ. And then they come down. All of you have come down now. How many of you would like Jesus? Okay, repeat this prayer after me. Because he stands at the door and he's knocking. And if you will open up your heart by repeating this prayer, he'll come in. Now, I will tell you that some people get saved during all of this, but not because of it. They get saved in spite of it. And then sometimes after that's done, the preacher will go, did all of you pray that prayer? Yes. Were you sincere? Yes. Welcome to the family of God. What is that? And you know what happens? People go back to their seats. Many of them never change at all, but they've been inoculated to the gospel. Don't worry about me. I'm saved. I done did it. You done did what? I, I prayed the prayer. I mean, I'm, I was sincere. That's not what this text means. It's opening your life. Christ, save me. Do you want to know something? I have no authority as a minister to tell you you're saved. You will never hear me do that. I have authority to tell you how to be saved. And I have authority to teach you biblical principles on the assurance of salvation. How you can know or have assurance that you've been born again. But I'm not going to tell you because you prayed a prayer and thought you were sincere that you are now saved. Welcome to the family of God. Wouldn't you want affirmation from somebody more than a man? Wouldn't you want affirmation, some of you will know exactly what I'm talking about, from the Holy Spirit? That's why people will come to me after they hear me preach, Brother Paul, God's dealing with me. And I'll say, son, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Brother Paul, I'm not, 
you know, I understand that. I mean, I, I believe, I'm, but I'm just, I'm not sure. Young man, listen to me. Everyone's going out to play volleyball right now. It's youth camp. If God's really dealing with your heart, go out in that field and cry out to him for a while. Settle the matter with God. Let God settle the matter with you. Seek him and you have the promise that you will find him. And I have seen so many young people come back and say, Paul, I'm saved. How do you know? I met with God out there. I know God has forgiven my sins. And then you know what I do? This is what I do. I say, if you have truly believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, praise the Lord, you're saved. Now, here's one of the great evidences that will follow. Look at what we see in this text. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. Now look at what it says. And will dine with him and he with me. In the Oriental culture, in the East, one of the greatest signs of fellowship, communion, friendship, was what? Eating with one another. And what is Jesus saying? Those who have truly opened their lives to me and received my salvation will demonstrate that through ongoing communion with me. Ongoing fellowship with me. Ongoing friendship with me. They will grow in their relationship with me. Do you see that? But that's not what we hear preached in American culture today. It is you open your heart by praying the prayer. You ask Jesus to come in. He came in. The evangelist assures you that he did come in. And then you go out of there and spend almost no life of communion whatsoever with God. But you are assured of your conversion because you're part of a youth group. You're part of a church. You're a moral person. But Christ is a concept. And your salvation is dependent upon the sincerity of a prayer you think you prayed correctly. It's creedalism. My dear friend, what he's teaching us here is that salvation is by faith. By opening our lives to Christ and believing in Him. But what he's also teaching is this. The evidence that you truly have believed, that you've become a child of God, is ongoing communion with Christ. Since that day of your supposed conversion, have you grown in your fellowship and communion with Christ? Remember what he said in Matthew. Depart from me. I never knew you. In, in the Greek, it's not such a impregnated term. The word ginosko just means to know. But it, it's translating a Hebrew idea that means intimate fellowship. It can be even physical intimacy. And what Christ is saying to those people who said, Lord, Lord, he says, depart from me. I never walked with you. We didn't spend a life of communion together and fellowship and growth. Me leading you following. We had no relationship like that. All oh, you, you had a creed. You see? That's what's going on here. So the evidence of conversion is what? You will confess Christ. Well, Brother Paul, are you telling me that if, that if someone is a true Christian, they'll never deny Jesus? No, I'm not saying that at all. There were cases and have been cases and exist today where at gunpoint or threat of death, a true Christian in their weakness denied Christ and escaped execution 
And then the account is always the same. Lived in absolute misery until they repented. And many of them looked and sought out the soldiers to go to them and say, I failed my Christ, I confess him now. And they died and sealed their confession with their life. Just like Peter. We're all weak. But if we truly, truly have believed in Christ and we've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, we will confess Him. And it won't be an empty confession. It may be feeble. It will not be empty. He really is Lord. And look what it says. There's a big thing going on today. No, in order to be saved, you only have to trust Jesus as Savior, not Lord. That's not what it says in Romans 10. You confess Him. It doesn't say confess Him as Savior. It says confess Him as Lord. It's kind of like this. You know, these preachers will say, Jesus is standing on the outside, you know, and He wants to come in to give you eternal life and all the good things that He promises you. Well, let let me change that around a little bit. You're in your room. You're in your house. Your fortress you've built against God. You're absolutely miserable. I mean, it's just empty and miserable and full of sin and rot and everything. And all of a sudden, Jesus knocks on the door. And He says, I come to give you life and life in abundance. I come to take away all your sins. You think, wow. You jump up from your seat and you run to the door and you grab a hold of the door handle and right when you're getting ready to turn the door handle, Jesus clears His voice. One moment. I will keep my promises with you. I will forgive you of all your sins. I will give you eternal life. And I will lead you in a way everlasting. But you need to understand something. The moment you open that door, the house is mine. The door is mine. The doorknob's mine. You're mine. Everything's mine. 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 Now do you still want to open that door? Abraham Kuyper, the great Dutch Reformed theologian, he said this one time to a group of people who thought more about themselves than they did Christ. He said, you need to understand something. When Jesus Christ comes back to this earth, He will stretch forth His hand around the entire globe and He will cry out, Mine, 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 Mine. I have walked with Him for 29 years. And I have many regrets. They can all be summed up in this. I regret what I have kept from Him. Not what I have given Him. He's trustworthy. He is trustworthy. Now, I want us to go on. Let's just look for a moment at Matthew chapter 7. Verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are few who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Now, I want you to realize something. This is the Sermon on the Mount. 
If you read the first three verses of chapter 5, where the Sermon on the Mount begins, you realize that Jesus sits on a mountain and he opens his mouth and his disciples come to him and he teaches them. That is a construct of Matthew. And it's very, very important, extremely important. First of all, Matthew is writing Jews who are waiting for a king. They were Jews who were most influenced and most adherents to the man Moses and the law of Moses. So, instead of saying Jesus sat down on a hill, he makes it clear he sat down on a mountain. What's going on? There are two mountains in the Bible. Well, actually three. There's Mount Sinai. Where the law was given to Moses. But now, in the Sermon on the Mount, we see that God, instead of giving the law to His people, has come down to teach His people. The full revelation of the will of God in the Sermon on the Mount. And He goes through three chapters of the Sermon on the Mount of exquisite, moral, ethical, religious teaching. But then we get to the last part of seven and something starts changing. It's like someone opened up a window and a cool, strange breeze begins to blow something mysterious and far away something of otherness starts to creep around us as we read this text we realize that Jesus is very very different Christianity is very very different than all the other religions in what way you talk about Buddha but you won't talk about eternity Buddha is about principles for this life and maybe some frail idea of eternity. You talk about all these people and basically all these religious teachers, it's all about principles, it's all about this life, it's all about doing things a certain way. Jesus comes to you and says, now listen to me. After I finish all this stuff that I'm telling you, you need to understand something. This is not about your best life now. This is about life and death, heaven, hell, everlasting destruction or everlasting blessedness. It's frightful. He seems to grab you up by the shirt collar and says, listen to me. Your life depends on this. Your eternity depends on this. Unless your righteousness exceeds those of the Pharisees, there's no hope for you. What he's saying is, trust in me. But if you trust in me, you will bear fruit. It will be obvious to all that you are trusting in me. Do not deceive yourself that you have made some sort of profession of faith in Jesus. That you're part of the Christian gang. That you'll even listen to some Christian music. Or that you'll wear a Christian t-shirt. Or there's certain things that you will not do because you think they're wrong. Be very careful. That does not deceive you and turn into your very ticket to hell. And that's where he goes when he gets to this passage. And look what he says. He says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. Now, in evangelical Christianity in America today, I praise God that they still believe, at least some do, that there's only one gate and it's very narrow. Most evangelicals, all evangelicals will tell you there are not many ways to heaven. Although some evangelicals are beginning to doubt that. 
There's, there's not many ways to heaven. There's only one way, one door, one gate. It is Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Him. There is no other name given to men under heaven by which we must be saved. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There's no way back to God except through Christ. And that's what makes Christianity the most hated religion in the world. All we'd have to do is change one article and everybody would love Christianity. If I just said Jesus is a Savior... I'd be on every talk show in Hollywood tomorrow and everyone would like me if I said Jesus is a Savior. But see, I'm not saying that. I'm saying Jesus is the Savior to the exclusion of all other Saviors. And that's why Christians in the Roman Empire were killed as atheists. Because they denied the existence of all the other gods. Everyone was having a good time. I mean, they swapped gods like baseball cards. And then Christians show up and say, no, all your gods are false gods. There's only one true God and His Son, Jesus Christ. There's only one door, and it's Christ. And it's not Christ's church. Christ's church is not the door. Even Christ's ordinances are not the door. Baptism, Lord's Supper, they're not the door. The person of Christ is the door. You must cling to Him, believe in Him. It is Christ. He is the shepherd. In the door, you need Him. You must have Him. You must hold to Him. You must believe in Him. But here's what evangelical Christianity doesn't teach anymore. It says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. This is what Christianity does not teach. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. What he's saying is this. Christianity just doesn't have a gate or a door. It also has a way. And that way is narrow. And if you do not walk in that narrow way, you are not a Christian. You say, well, Brother Paul, that sounds like works. You mean we trust in Jesus and then if we don't walk in the narrow way, we, we lose our salvation or we're not saved? Or what are you trying to tell me? No, let's go back to two sides of the coin. The evidence that you believe in Jesus is that you confess Him as Lord even when it costs you. The evidence that you believe in Jesus according to James is that you have works. Your life has been changed. You live a different way. And now Jesus is saying this, the evidence that you have passed through the narrow gate, that is that you've believed in Him, is that you're now walking in the narrow way. What is that narrow way? The way marked out by the commandments of Christ. Now think about that. It kind of goes like this. I'll kind of do a dramatization for you. If a, let, let's say a person, hears a sermon, maybe even today, hears a sermon, they go, I believe in Jesus. And they confess Jesus today. And then what happens is they begin to walk on the narrow way. They begin to study their Bible, learn more things about God. They seem to have a passion. And then all of a sudden, one day they start straying. And you have to go get them or they won't come to the Christian meeting. You have to go get them or they won't come to church. They start making excuses. And eventually they just totally go off the path and want nothing to do with you or your Christianity. What happened there? The evidence that he left the path, the fact that he left the path, the narrow way is evidence he never went through the narrow gate. You see that? But now, how does a true believer do? A true believer, a man comes along, he hears the gospel, what happens? 
He believes in Christ. Well, this is wonderful. Then what happens? He begins to walk in the narrow way. He begins to learn about God in the scriptures and about Christ and the commandments of Christ. And he begins to walk two steps forward, one step back, three steps forward, five steps back. His life kind of goes like this. But over the long run, you can see it's always going up. And then if he's truly a Christian, Brother Paul, are you saying that he'll always stay on the path? Absolutely not. Sheep stray, don't they? You say, well, you mean he'll stray just like the other guy? No, he won't. Why? Because when he starts straying, the Holy Spirit will convict him of his sin. If he keeps straying, even God will discipline him according to Matthew, uh, according to Hebrews chapter 12. And what will happen? God will put him back on the path again. Maybe beaten and half broken, but put him on the path again. And he'll keep walking and keep walking. You hear a lot as athletes about perseverance. We read Philippians 1.6. Paul was persuaded that he who began a good work in them would finish it until when? Until the day of Christ Jesus. That's what we're talking about here. That's why I'm preaching on this. I changed things around when I heard him read that text. It's all about this. How do I know that God began a good work in me? Because he continues the good work in me. How do I know that I passed through the small gate that I actually believed in Jesus because I continue in the narrow way and when I get off the narrow way, God comes looking for me? Do you see that? I mean, this is real. It's supernatural. It's powerful. I remember I was a young man and God was calling me to preach and I really didn't want to do it and all this kind of stuff and I had a 66 Mustang, 289, four barrel. Man, take all them little foreign cars of yours. I'd have whipped all of you. <laughs> MT headers, four barrel. Man, it was just amazing. And I got in my car. I thought to myself, I'm driving to California. It's like, God's just kind of standing there. Yeah, go for it. And I'll be waiting for you when you get there. Have you ever, as a Christian, I mean, as a believer, you're sitting there and sometimes you're almost like, I can't get away from him. That's good. Because if you can, you're not his child. Look, look, let's just go on here. Look what Hebrew says in chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 Verse 7, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Do you understand what this is saying? If you're a person who professes Christ and just lives in out and out rebellion, unconcerned about the things of God, God does not deal with you. It's because you're an illegitimate child. You're not really born again. You've never been his. You're not his. The evidence that you're truly converted is that he becomes your father. A very diligent father. And look what it says. It goes on. It says, verse nine, furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live for they disciplined us for a short time, as seems best to them. But he disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. Is God, is that a reality in your life? I just have to ask that question. 
Now don't lie. There's nothing to lie about. You're just talking to you. Is this a reality in your life? You say you profess faith in Christ. Is he disciplining you, teaching you on to you, behind you, pursuing you in front of you, leading you, hemming you in in order to make you holy? Or can you just live like all the unbelievers, just like everybody else? You love the same stuff they love. You do the same stuff they do. Where are you? This discipline thing is really I, I remember. I don't know what grade I was in, but my mom put some new pants on me for school. It was the first day of school. And she said, now don't go down to the sewer ditch and play and don't get in a fight. Well, she just took away all my joy. So after school, went down to the sewer ditch, got all filthy. I'm mean, everything else that we would. I was it was horrible. I knew I was going to die. And so I, I took two of my friends. I still remember the name, Rance and John. Maybe even Bruce was there. I took them with me because I've always had a sharp mind. So I walk up to the house. And my mom looks out the door. It was terrifying. Steam coming out of her ears, laser beams out of her eyes. And she said to me, go up to your room and prepare to be killed. And so I automatically pointed out to my mother, Mom, Rance, Bruce, John, they're dirty. They're as dirty as I am. They may be dirtier than me. And you're not going to kill them. And my mother taught me some really good theology. She said, They're not my sons. Now go up to your room, say your prayers. And prepare to die. <laughs> now do you see what happened there? I was hers. I belonged to her. Let, let the world run as wild as it may. God will not let his children do that. And if you can do that, you're not his child. And he'll give you rope at time enough to hang yourself a bit. He'll rush in and save you before you kill yourself. But I want to tell you something. If discipline, God's loving Compassionate discipline and sometimes very, very hard discipline is not in your life. You need to be very afraid. Why does he just let me run into sin and do all these horrible things? Maybe because you're not his child. And when I mean loving and compassionate discipline, my friend, I want you to understand something. I'm not saying that it's just this beautiful little talk he gives you when you do something wrong. Listen to what it says in the text. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved from him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. Do you know what scourging is? It's making a whip out of cords and beating someone's black and uh, someone's back until it's bloody. I know that doesn't fit in. To our ideas today. But I can tell you so many saints, I being one of them, who can quote these words from Keith Green, a song he wrote for his son right before he died. Oh, my son, I am weak and I'm trembling. For the Lord, I am always remembering. For what a strong shepherd holds you in his arms. He will break you and make you his own.
Yes, He will break you and make you His own. Is that a reality in your life? Is that a reality in your life? So let's let's look, let's review here. Very, very important. And we're going to take up this text again to talk about more about regeneration and how do you know if you're saved? But I want you to think about this. It's like a coin with two different sides. If you get them reversed, you really get yourself in trouble. The order is like this. Now, I'm, I'm going to give you a lesson in ontology, okay? The Greek word ontos, the doctrine of being. If you're an intelligent group, you'll follow me. I, in my being, I have an evil heart. I am evil in my being. I'm talking about my pre-Christian years. I am. I have an evil heart. That's what the Bible says. Now, an evil heart, an evil nature, an evil creature has evil affections. You see that? Now, evil affections wants nothing good. So, why does the sinner hate God? Because God is good. Why does the sinner hate God? Because God is love. You say, how can that be? Here's the thing. The sinner is evil. He sees a good God. He hates it. He sees God's good law. He hates it. He wants nothing to do with it. That's why when people talk about the law, they say it's bondage. No, it's actually a really good law. You know, don't kill people. Love your neighbor. Don't steal your neighbor's wife. Those are all good laws. When you're calling stuff like that bondage, it just proves you're evil. So what happens? We hear the gospel. And God does a supernatural work in our hearts. I mean, we were what you've got to understand, according to Romans seven, if you have an evil heart, the more you see of a righteous Christ, the more you'll hate him. So how does a sinner ever come to Christ? It is through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit do? Born again doesn't mean you made a decision. Born again means God came in and recreated your heart and made you into a new creature. And so when you hear the gospel, the Holy Spirit regenerates your heart and you're a new creature. Your eyes open up. You see the beauty of Christ. And guess what? Your heart is new. And because your heart is new, you have new affections, new affections that love righteousness. You see Christ, which is the personification of righteousness, and you want him. That's how Christianity works. A preacher is preaching. You hear a voice within a voice. You begin to see Christ like you've never seen him before. You begin to desire him, want him, leave your sin. You want to be free. You want to know Christ. What is that? It's the work of the Holy Spirit. He's changed your heart. You believe in Christ. You trust in him. And those who truly believe have new affections. And those new affections push us to righteousness and to holiness. I want to be holy, not because it's something I've got to do. It's something I want to do. I want to be holy. But like I said, it's two sides of a coin. If a person truly believes in Christ, it means that the Holy Spirit has regenerated or changed their heart so that now they confess Christ. They can do no other. I must confess him even though I die. I must. I'm a new creature. He made me new. I must confess him. The other thing is, if I believe in Christ, I've been regenerated of the Holy Spirit. And as a new creature, I am going to carry on in a different way. Pigs don't act like horses and horses don't act like dogs. I'm a new creature and I live a different way now. 
Another thing is James said, if I truly believe in Christ, my nature has been changed, my heart has been changed, I've been regenerate, and I am going to have different kinds of works. Good works that the Father prepared beforehand for me to walk in them according to Ephesians 2. So you see, the evidence that we're truly converted is the way in which we live. Is the communion we continue on in with Christ. Do you see how crazy this has gotten? I mean, we have what, 65% of Americans believe themselves to be born again, and we kill what, four or 5,000 babies a day? Our country is overrun with filth. We've been baptized in filth. That which is an abomination is praised as a virtue. That which is a virtue in this country is scorned as an abomination. But we're Christian. Or just because you live on a farm and you say yes ma'am to your mom, do you think that makes you Christian? Just because you go to Sunday school? After a Saturday night drunk? No, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, the new has come. Has the new come with you? Do you have a new heart, new desires, new affections, new goals, new motivation? And it's all about Jesus Christ. Do you? Do you? Because if you don't, talk to a counselor. Talk to me. Be concerned for your soul. Christianity is not some thing in life that you need to make your life better. Christianity is life. Christ is not the cherry on the top of an already wonderful life. He is life, and without Him you have nothing. Christian would rather go through torments of hell in communion with Christ than to live in a utopia without Him. Christ is life. Now, in closing, I want to be very careful that I don't move you into some false condemnation either. Some of you are lost. You live like it. You are without Christ. But some of you are truly Christian and yet you struggle with doubts. You look at your own failures. It tears you up inside. It eats you. That's good in one way because it's showing that there is something there. But here's something else I want you to understand. You doubt sometimes that you're a Christian because you struggle to read the Word. I struggle to read the Word. You doubt sometimes you're Christian because you don't pray like you ought to. I don't pray like I ought to. Because you're sometimes really selfish in your relationships. Yeah, I've been there, done that, got the t-shirt. One of the greatest evidences of the Christian life is not a life without a fight. It is the fight. You know Christ is the Savior. You know that He alone has eternal life. You know that you must have Him, must believe in Him. You know how much you hate it when you fail Him. If that's the reality in your life, then rejoice. Rejoice. I had a professor one time. I walked into his office all tore up. 
I sat down. He looked at me. He said, Paul, what's wrong? I said, Dr. Hunt, I'm, I'm just... I'm just not like Christ. I want to be more like Christ. Sometimes I'm so stinking selfish and sometimes I just say things I shouldn't say. And sometimes my thoughts aren't right and my motivations aren't right. And I just I want to be more like Christ, but I'm not like Christ. And I just feel like a failure. And I think just sometimes the world just ought to swallow me down and open up and all la, 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 la. And then I just collapse in the chair. <laughs> and he walks over to me, gets up out of his chair. The old man gets up out of his chair, walks behind me, puts both hands on my shoulders. This is what he says. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pronounce you blessed. And he went and sat down. And I was kind of like, well, that was weird. <laughs> and he said, Paul, you don't understand what I just did. And I said, no, Dr. Hunt, I don't understand what you just did. He said, Paul, have you never read? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. He goes, Paul, you walked into my office starving for righteousness, upset at your lack of righteousness, wanting to be more like Christ, desiring to serve him more, to please him more, to know him in a better way. Don't you see, Paul, you're, you're fulfilling what is happening here. You are hungering, thirsting for righteousness. Son, you will be satisfied. Son, if you'd have walked in here content with your Christianity, I would have had to pronounce over you, would have had to have pronounced over you a condemnation, a curse. Are you content? Just you got your fire assurance, insurance and you can live in sin and you can do all your stuff and you love the world. You look like the world, act like the world, talk like the world. The world is yours and you're, you belong to the world. And you're content with that? I am so sorry to tell you, but there is every evidence in the world that points to the fact that you do not know God and God does not know you. But if you're broken and desire to be more like Christ, to please Him, serve Him, know Him, be rid of your sin that so often besets you, then I've got great news for you. That is some very strong evidence that both you know God and God knows you. And those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. All right, well, think on these things and ask yourself and ask God, do you know me? Do I know you? Am I saved? If not, I want to take this matter and put an end to it this evening. To seek him, let's pray. Father, I pray, Lord God, that you would work in the hearts these young people, that they would see through if, if there is lie, if there is deception, the deception of their own false conversion. Lord God, that Christ would be revealed to them. That He would be precious to them, made precious by the Holy Spirit. Dear God, work in their hearts and in their lives that they might know Thee, O God. And for the Christian, that they might go from strength to strength and glory to glory, that they would recognize that their weakness is not a hindrance to power, but the catalyst to power. Lord, help them. In Jesus' name.